Let's pray before we open the word together this morning. Our Father, we are thankful that you are a God of life, a God who grants life. We pray even this morning that through this living word, that we would know life and know it abundantly. We pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. This is a holy, inerrant, sufficient word of God. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain." But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is acted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them, When he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so, I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the old, the first one, obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Though the grass withers, And the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's a very 
direct beginning to this passage. Now the point in what we are saying is this. The writer is saying the summary is this. Everything that I have so far said in the book of Hebrews leading up to this 8th chapter, it can be summarized in this one point. Everything that I'm going to say after this, all that comes after this in the book of Hebrews, it could be summarized by this one main point. And what is that one point? We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We have belongs to us. We have a high priest. This is our high priest. One who is different from all that have come before Him. This one that is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He's ours. We have Him. First, Notice that our high priest is equal with the Father. He's equal with the Father. It's no small thing to say that he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is at his right hand. The one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. The majesty on high being God the Father. This is no small thing to say to a monotheistic people. Think about Psalm 110, which the writer of Hebrews has quoted so many times. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool beneath your feet. Or think about the scene in Revelation 4, that that great moment when John is caught up in a vision and he is led before the throne in heaven, the very throne room in heaven. And he says, Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And around the throne were 24 elders, and those 24 elders are taking their crowns and they're throwing them at the feet of the one who is seated upon the throne. And there are four living creatures with eyes all around them that are around the throne. And there is thunder and there is lightning and there is the sound as if the roaring ocean is there before the throne and you hear them calling out night and day, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Our high priest, is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is very God of very God. He's equal with the Father. When you approach the Father in prayer, as Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, when you approach the Father in prayer in the very name of Jesus, who is very God, the very God, you can approach the Father with absolutely no fear. Because the way made for you is made for you by very God, of very God. 
Think about that scene back in Exodus when the Israelites go to Mount Sinai and God is on the mountain in that glory cloud and it is a picture where there is thunder and lightning and there is roaring and the Jewish people say, ah, we can't go up there. Moses, be a mediator for us. You go up there. But notice the scene in Revelation with John. There's no qualms. Same scene, thunder and lightning and roaring. But he can draw near. Why can he draw near? Because of the Son, his high priest, who is very God, a very God, who is not only God, but he's your Savior and he's your friend if you're in Christ Jesus. It's made possible by our second point. You'll notice our high priest accomplished all. Our high priest accomplished all. As he's enthroned, he is seated. Remember, as we just talked about last week on Good Friday, when he hung upon that cross, the Lord Jesus, and some of his final words on the cross, he will cry out and he will say, it is finished. And truly, indeed, it is finished. His atoning sacrifice for sinners accomplished all. It was accepted, and thus he sits. Never was a high priest ever able to sit in the Holy of Holies because his job was never done. Year after year, he would have to go back into the Holy of Holies to offer more sacrifices because more sacrifices were needed. But not this high priest. He's entered into the very holy of holies in the heavens themselves and He's taken a seat because He's done all that was needed. It's accomplished. Your salvation is accomplished. It's finished. But that leads to our third point. It's not as if He is doing nothing now. Third, our high priest continues ministering above. He continues ministering above. We've already seen that in the book of Hebrews, that he is interceding for us, that he is praying for those that are his. How awful it would be if he wasn't praying for you and I, but he is. And he does that, the writer of Hebrews says, in the true tent. That is, the true temple that is above. The one that is set up by God, not the one that was set up by man here on earth. And the writer of Hebrews then offers a little argument for these Jewish Christians in verses 3 through 5. He says, look, if Jesus Christ is a high priest, I'll, I'll deal with the question that you're asking. Well, why isn't he ministering down here? If he's such a high priest, why isn't he ministering here? And the author's point would be, is, is that he wouldn't be a priest down here. Not according to the Levitical law. As we looked at in previous weeks, Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. And so it's as if the writer of Hebrews is saying, you silly Jewish Christians, don't you know? The tent or the tabernacle or the temple here, it was but a shadow. It was but a copy of the very meeting place with God in heaven. This down here is the inferior. It's a copy. The above is superior because it is the substance. There is no need for Him on earth. 
There were plenty of priests who could offer sacrifices on earth, but there is only one priest who could enter the reality in heaven and offer a true lasting sacrifice. And that is Jesus. He's above. And there, in that true tent of meeting, He ministers on our behalf. He has a ministry, as the writer says, that is, quote, is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better. It's so good to be on this side of the redemption of Christ. Remember when Jesus said, He said, Abraham longed to see my day. It is so good to be on this side of the redemption of Christ. His ministry and the covenant He mediates is much more excellent. Chuckle at how the ESV tries to communicate that. Much more excellent. uh, They're trying to grab the sense of the Greek text there where the author of Hebrews he's just multiplying adjectives there it'd be like a child that comes to their mom and says mommy you're the most beautifulest gorgeous pretty woman who has ever lived it's clumsy it's a little bit silly but but you understand and that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying It is much more excellent. We have, we have a high priest who is better than all. And the covenant that he mediates, the new covenant, the fulfillment of the covenant in the Scriptures is far better. It is, as the writer says in verse 6, enacted on better promises. And so that's what I want to do, look at in the last part of the sermon. I want to look at this new covenant. We're going to tackle the new covenant, especially when we get to chapter 9, and we'll spend a lot more time on it. But what I want to do this morning is look at what he says about the new covenant, these better promises that it's enacted upon. So you have this better high priest who is the mediator of this better covenant, and this better covenant is enacted upon better promises. And he gives us three of them. Notice, he says, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. There's one God, there's one Savior, and there is one people of God. He doesn't make a covenant with a new people. He still calls them Israel in the new covenant. Members of the new covenant are grafted into the new Israel, as Paul will make very clear in Romans 11. Gentiles are grafted in. Most of us in this room are Gentiles. You've been grafted in to Israel. Israel is the church of the old covenant, and the church is the Israel of the new covenant. If your faith is in Christ this morning... We, as members of the church today, are His people Israel. He does not make a new people. There is no parentheses in history, as some theologians will tell you. One people of God, as one theologian said, He renews and He expands His people in Christ. One people across time. 
One Savior across time. One God across time. One people across time. One. Now why did God make a new covenant? Why does He call it new? Well, covenant is making a pledge with attendant blessings and cursings attached to it. We could say it's a binding argument or binding agreement. And the author says in verse 7 that the old covenant had faults. Not that there was something wrong with it, but rather it was something the nation of Israel could not keep. Verse 9, they did not continue in my covenant. And he's speaking specifically about that old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, as he talks about leading them out of the land of Egypt here. The people of Israel time and again went chasing after other gods and they broke the covenant time and time again. One of the most poignant illustrations God gives of this is of Hosea and Gomer in the Old Testament, at least in my mind, where God commands Hosea, that prophet, to go out and to get himself a wife and He tells him that his wife is to be Gomer, a woman who is truly unworthy to be a wife of a prophet, a prostitute, a woman unclean, a woman who has given herself to others, a woman who had nothing to recommend her as a wife. And so it was true of Israel. The people of God, they were unclean. They had worshipped other gods. They had nothing to recommend them as the chosen ones of God. And yet God still took them and He still made them His own. You often hear people say that the old covenant is all law and no grace. No, it's all grace. It began in grace and it continued in grace. Hosea took Gomer in and he made her his wife, he provided for her, he nurtured her, he loved her, and yet time and again she would leave the safety, she would leave the provision of his love, and she would run off with other men doing that which should not be done. And so God says, through this living illustration, Israel has done this to me time and time again. They've broken the covenant. All that He called her from and all that He provided for her, and yet time and time again she would go whoring after other lovers. The writer says in verse 9, For they did not continue in My covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. They broke the covenant by their sin, violating it time and again. And so the nation was defeated time and again and will eventually be carried off into exile. The old covenant was less excellent. It was faulty, the writer says in verse 7. Not that it had error, but rather the people of Israel were unable to fulfill it. The covenant itself was good. The law itself was good. But it was made up of external laws and external rituals. And the people of Israel, as Jeremiah will say in Jeremiah 17, they had deceitful hearts. All men are born in this world with deceitful hearts. 
The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. And so they could not keep that law. The new covenant is better. Why? Because it has, as he says in verse 6, better promises. Three better promises of the new covenant that our mediator, our high priest mediates. First, the promise of the new covenant is that it is internal. It's internal. He says in verse 10, I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. The old covenant gave the law to the people, but not the ability to obey it. They couldn't do it. They had the truth. They possessed it externally. But as Jeremiah points out, in that chapter 17, right before chapter 31, the heart is deceitful above all else. But in the new covenant, God places His law within a man or within a woman. He writes it on our hearts. He writes it upon our minds. That is, He regenerates us by the power of His Spirit that that He has poured out upon the New Testament church. And He takes that heart of stone and He turns it into a heart of flesh. We're born again. Our hearts are made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's internal. As Stephen Meyer said, God will literally rewrite the hearts of His people. This is a far better promise. Remember, first time it occurred to me about this I was um, was in college went to college as an atheist had sat under the preach word for a number of months and I was on my dorm floor and I was down at the room of a fellow student on my floor and was in his room and I had brand new red wing boots and I loved them And this other guy in that room, it was a room filled with probably 15 guys in this room, just hamming it up. And one of those guys stepped on my new pair of red wing boots. And jokingly, I pushed him. Well, he didn't find it funny. And he came back and he launched into me. And I went flying across the room. And I stood up and I pulled back my arm with a clenched fist. And I would have punched him in middle school or high school. But a thought went across my mind. Jesus wouldn't have me punch him. And all those boys were standing around and they were jeering me. Punch him! Punch him! I remember putting my hand down, walking out of the room to them catcalling me and making fun of me and walking down the hall to my dorm room and I had a smile on my face. As I was walking down the hall because I kept thinking, 
I think I might be a Christian. Change my heart. Changes the heart. With this law written upon your heart, you begin to do what you never wanted to. And you stop doing what you found so pleasurable, though sinful before. I used to laugh at the boy in high school that would carry his Bible to every class with him. And now in college, I was carrying it to every class with me so I could just steal away a few minutes to read before class started. I used to think it was crazy that Christians would spend Sunday mornings at church. And now I couldn't get enough of going to church and worshiping. Give me morning, give me evening, give me afternoon. I hated the fact that Christians felt the need to continually tell people about Christ. If it's good for you, stick to it. But you don't have to keep talking to me about it. Now I couldn't help but tell friends and family about it. He writes it on our minds. We begin to think after Him. He writes it in our hearts. We begin to desire after Him. He works within us. That makes the new covenant superior. May think, but I don't desire as I should. I don't hate sin as I should. Well, welcome to the club of all Christians. That's true of all of us. But here's the promise of God. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Notice how Paul begins that. He who began. You don't arrive at Christ perfected. The law is written upon your mind. It's written upon your heart. But it's not as if you are perfected in a moment. He who began a good work in you, and it's in you, He will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That is, as John says, you will become like Him because you shall see Him as He is. There will be one day that that which is written upon your mind and written upon your heart, that which you have embraced, but not fully and wholly in every way in this life, you will in the next. And you will sin no more. A new covenant is superior. Second, we see a greater promise in the new and that He will forgive our sins and forget our sins forevermore. Verse 12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. What an incredible promise. We have a God who forgives our sins and forgets our sins, if we can say it that way. Here's forgiveness that carries with it no charge. It is complete, full, unsullied forgiveness. This word that's used for merciful here, the root word of that word is the same word that is used to speak about the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. Where that high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Well, Jesus has gone into the Holy of Holies. 
His blood has been shed. And so God is everlastingly merciful towards you if you are in Christ. Such forgiveness that our sin has never brought back up. It never bubbles to the surface again to be held against us. You've experienced this maybe with a sibling, maybe with a friend, maybe with a child, maybe with a spouse, where you have sinned against them, maybe even committed a pattern of sin and they forgave you, and yet it comes out in conversation, often in a heated conversation. It's, it's wielded as a weapon, not with God. Or maybe subconsciously, you find that those close to you are a little more reserved with you because of something that you did or something that you left undone. Not with God. There are also sins committed in the past that you are unaware of. A time that you injured someone. And they bring it up years later. You didn't even know about it. Had this happen just a few months ago to me. I had a a ruling elder call me, or he texted me first, or he shot me an email and said, Jason, can we have a phone call? I said, yes, I'd be happy to, and set up a phone call, and he told me on the phone call, this was a man I served with 18 years ago. He told me for 18 years he's been carrying around pain because of something I said to him. I don't remember saying it. I'm sure I did. For 18 years. And it comes out of nowhere. I'm glad he called. I'm glad he told me so I could ask for forgiveness. But with God, there will be no surprises brought up from the past. Not with God. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. The old covenant was not bad, but the new covenant is so much Better The old has become, as the writer says, obsolete because Christ has fulfilled everything it pointed to. And that leads to our third and final better promise of the new. And it is this. He will be our God and love us forever. He will be our God and love us forever. In Christ, In Christ, we are told, verse 10, God will be our God and we shall be His people forever. This covenant can't be broken. In Jeremiah 31, the passage that all of these verses are quoted from, God says in verse 3 of Jeremiah 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. It's an everlasting love. He says in verse 36, 
God says in the New Covenant, if this fixed order departs, meaning the sun and the moon and the stars, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease. He says in verse 37 of chapter 37 of Jeremiah, If the heavens can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel. It's God's way of saying to you and I in the new covenant, it's impossible. It can't happen. This covenant can't be broken. You can never be thrown off. You can never be abandoned. Do you know that, Christian? Do you know that? God pursues us to the end and He keeps us to the end. See, in the New Covenant, like Gomer, we can go astray and God just keeps chasing after us. That's better. He does not and He will not abandon. Listen, there are times, I'll grant you this, there are times. And there are entire seasons. And it feels as if He's abandoned us. His rays of goodness and grace don't seem to fall on us in the same way as they did yesterday. Some of you, no doubt, are there this morning. It just feels distant. It doesn't feel quite as near. goodness is a long ago felt reality, but not a present reality. Sometimes, not all the time, sometimes that's because of our sin. Like clouds that fill the sky, lessen the experience of the sun's light and heat, so our sin can cloud over our lives. And we experience less of God's goodness and grace. And some of you are there this morning. But understand, His rays of goodness and grace are still aimed at you. The sun never stops shining. It never stops generating heat and aiming that light and heat at the earth. It illumines. And so God never stops being full of goodness and grace. And He never stops aiming it at His people. Just sometimes our sin clouds over the atmosphere. There are other times, though, through no fault of our own, we've experienced it. A hard day, a hard season, a hard providence. We can't understand it. We don't understand why this has occurred or that hasn't occurred. We search ourselves and we say, like David, there's no unrepentant sin that I'm aware of. And so it just appears that God in His providence has brought a dark day. Or maybe a dark week or a dark month. Maybe dark years. And it can feel as though He has left us. 
that he has abandoned us, that he's forsaken his covenant with his people. But it's not true. It can't be true. Because he's bound himself by covenant oath. It's impossible, as the writer of Hebrews said, for him to lie. What goes through my mind in seasons like that is what the the reformers used to often say as a battle cry during the Reformation, post-tenebrous lux, light after darkness. It's just a matter of time. Light comes because it's always aimed at His people. The new covenant guarantees this. God is good. And He does not abandon His people. You can take that to the bank. I'm not sure if you saw it this week. um, But our sister church, Covenant Presbyterian in Nashville, Tennessee, had the school attached to it. Where those... Ah, young lives were murdered. Those adults were murdered. The Covenant School gathered together for the very first time on Monday for chapel. They gathered there at Covenant Presbyterian Church for chapel. After all of these dark days over these last couple of weeks, Right in front of the chapel door, the sanctuary door, these beautiful doors that go in to the Covenant Presbyterian Church, they're, they're all getting ready to walk in. And in the sky, right in front of that door, you need to look it up if you haven't seen it, there is the most glorious, bright, full rainbow you've ever seen. He's a God of promise. He doesn't forget His covenant people. If you are His, you are His forever. I will be their God and they shall be My people. Will, shall. Dear Christian, in the new covenant, He has loved you with an everlasting love. Gerhardus Voss so wonderfully said, I think better than anywhere I've ever read it. He said this, the best proof that He will never cease to love us lies in that He never began. What we are for Him and what He is for us belongs to the realm of eternal values. Without this, we are nothing. In it, we have all. He never began to love you. He's always loved you if you are in Christ. So He'll never stop. It's a promise of the new covenant. It's a better covenant with a better mediator, a better high priest. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful. 
oh, but not as thankful as we should be. But we are thankful for the blessings of the new covenant, for a high priest that has secured it for us, who even now mediates it on our behalf, and that we are on this side of His coming as the great high priest who offered Himself for sinners. Thank You for being such a merciful, loving, gracious God to sinners such as us. May we rejoice in the glory of You, our God, and the glory of our salvation today. And if there are any that do not know it today, we pray that You would pour out Your Spirit upon them, that that heart of stone might become a heart of flesh, and that You might write Your law upon their minds and their hearts forevermore. In Christ's name, Amen.